Hey there, and welcome to the Dynamics Hot Dish Podcast, serving up stories and knowledge on Dynamics 365 and the Power Platform. This is what's hot in Dynamics. You're now joining Merlin Schweiger, Liz McGlennon, and Ashley Steiner. It's a nice yawn. We have a guest today. Hi, puppy. This is Leo. (laughs) The puppy can't hear us. For anybody who's like listening as well, Liz has a puppy on her lap. I mean, is he really a puppy or is he just like a full grown dog that happens to be small? They're all puppers. Small dog. He's two. I call big dogs puppies. Puppers are just adorable. So you're a dog. Oh, look at that yawn. I like all animals. I am non discriminatory when it comes to animals really in general, but I just love any animal, but I love dogs when they belong to other people. I do not have the energy to like actually own a dog, but like my neighbors have a dog, Ray, and I'll go out and I'll play with her and like all this stuff. And then I'll be like, okay, here's your dog back. I'm going to go inside and sleep because I don't have a dog. So yeah. They're a commitment. Definitely. Yeah. They're a lot of work. I don't have that kind of commitment level. Varies by dog variety, right? Yes. Like some dogs yeah. are higher energy and other dogs are yes. energy. Yeah. And some are like smarter. If you, yeah. Right, like if you, if you had a new fee, it would probably just sit around all day and it'd be fine. Are people so, supposed to know what that is? I don't know. The, the Newfoundland, Newfoundland? The, 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 the giant bear sized dogs. Like water. Who calls rescue? it a new fee? Like, okay. Everyone. I clearly am not a dog person because like, yeah. I'm like, that dog is cute. They're like, oh, it's this kind of dog. And I'm like, it doesn't make it less or more cute. Like, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know dog breeds. Newfies so, shed, they slobber and they don't live oh, very long. Slobber. They're just, oh, the slobber is disgusting. They're cute. The licking of the face too. I couldn't do it. See, if it's your own dog, you don't mind. That. You say that, but I would probably still care the licking of the face. Like lick my hands, whatever. But like, like, cause Panther will lick my, my hands, my cat. Yeah. yeah, my no, dogs I, don't really lick my face, but they like to lick Tom's, and he hates it. And I think it's really funny that like I don't mind it, and they don't do it to me nearly as much. It's like they that's know probably when someone they doesn't do like it, and then they do it to them. That's hilarious. Uh, so they got a little bit of cat in there, like, oh, you don't like this? What's up? Yeah, especially Lucy. Like we call her a cat dog. Once well, very my aloof, cat, and my cat's very much like a dog. Really? Like, yeah. Well, he used to be, I'd say he's gotten a little grumpier in his old age, but like he would like walk up to people when they come in the door and be like, hello. And like, he's, he has very dog. He likes people. Like he likes, he always sleeps somewhere where he can see me. So like he sleeps on the back of the couch because you can see that from my office. That's cute. That's where he is right now. That's why I looked that direction. So, you know, but he's always like, he follows me everywhere. Like if I got up and went somewhere, he would like notice that I got up and followed me, even though he's dead asleep. Yeah. So that is got... like a dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I talk to him a lot. So and apparently give him ice water. That's Liz. Oh, that's right. That's Liz. My, like, I don't give them ice water every day. It's just I know they like it. It's a treat. I just make treat. sure Panther has like cold water from the fridge in the morning because he like you know like I do that because he likes the water cold like in his bowl but that did, cat will like die to lick out the, the bathtub <laughs> like he loves after he shower he'll jump in and he'll just lick all the water and I'm like well clearly it's like hot water and stuff because that's what I shower in but yeah no so it's like 
I buy him like purified water for his bowl, but that cat would drink out of the toilet if I left it up. Or yeah, mine drink out of like puddles or they like to drink out of like the pool or like if like a floaty has a cup holder and there's pool or rainwater in it, like just disgusting. Like that's mm-hmm. his favorite thing to go and try to drink. Yeah, I turn the faucet on for him in the morning for like a couple minutes so he can play with the water and stuff. That's cute. Mm-hmm. So, cute. so your dog will drink pool water puddle water the most disgusting water in the world and yet you would not object to them licking you in the face that is absolutely terrifying and disgusting well i mean think and, about my cat cleans himself and i let him lick me yeah but i wash my hands like right after and i don't let him lick like anything but my hands oh all right well we got to move on to our actual topic before <laughs> you, I okay merlin you have children <laughs> who also do gross things because children are not you know the cleanest so don't don't get yeah, on our animals that's true that's true but i don't let my child lick the bottom of his feet and then lick <laughs> my face because that's gross and i can tell my child that's gross don't do that yeah but you're not gonna stop a dog from licking i definitely I would. will stop a dog from licking me i'll be like no but from like gross. cleaning themselves Keep your face away from me oh i don't yeah i don't care what the dog wants to do with his own face on his own body but that does not come to me. He does not get to look at me in the face. I'm not going to share my ice cream cone with a dog. That you don't want kisses? The... Nope. That's <laughs> revolting and disgusting. Neat. I know. Oh, yeah, I, like, I like how he's, he's just not like, going to give me kisses on command. I'm not your trained beast. Yeah, like I kiss my cat in the face all the time. And I guess I never even think about it. Oh. Or like his paws oh. will like, you'll be playing and his paws will go in your mouth and stuff. And it's like, oh, you just came out of the litter box. Oh, well, At least anyway, our topic boxes. for today, our topic for today is not how disgusting animals get on your face, but uh, to persuasion. <laughs> well, it's disgusting. So clearly we did not persuade you onto mm-hmm. the side of uh, letting no. animals. <laughs> so so you'll, you'll have to put your, uh, your skills of persuasion to better work. So today we're discussing persuasion. Um, and I am excited to learn more about this topic because I have been, I, I know very little about it other than using my own natural charm with people, which uh, is in very limited supply. Um, so People or your charm? The charm. <laughs> the, the charm is in limited supply. Um, so I'm curious, which one of you would like to tell me something interesting about how I can be more persuasive to others? Liz, you go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll go once. <laughs> sure. So I think we this topic stemmed from our negotiation episode, and we briefly like brought up persuasion, and I, I think that's what spurred us wanting to talk more about it. Um, I have a long list of different ways that like tactics, but I want to start with like why they work. Um, and so like animals and humans, well, we're animals, but humans use shortcuts to like make decisions. If you think about, you know, any decision you have to make, like it's impossible to like fully analyze and know every fact and like every component, every factor, um, other people, you know, might be involved before you make a decision. You know, if we really analyzed everything, we would just like not ever do anything in life. We'd be like analysis paralysis, right? And so over time, like our brains have come up with shortcuts that work most of the time. And you use those just because you don't have the capacity to fully like know everything about what you're deciding to do or not do. 
And so like, we're just kind of hardwired with things that work to like persuade people to do something or, you know, to believe a certain thing. Um, and like statistically, like data has proven that these like humans just naturally go that direction, like given a certain scenario. And so I have a whole, like a whole list of different um, kind of tactics or theories on like ways you can get someone to like you or, or do something. Well, what's like the one that you use most commonly? Cause I have one that I use. Well, I think it commonly. depends a lot on the situation. And I also think you can deploy multiple simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one I use like the least unintentionally, but it's just like there all the time is like likability. So people like people like them. People like you if you give them compliments. People, you know, there's the just general, hey, we get along. And because I like you, I'll do something for you. Now I see where I fall down. (laughs) Actually, which one do you use the most? I use the small wins one. So like if I can tell that somebody is like, obviously, because like it depends on the idea, right? That you're trying to sell somebody on. And if, um, if it's a really big thing, like I kind of get them there by like laying smaller pieces of it. Um, as I go, I do that a lot at work. I hope nobody from my job is, uh, listening to this because like, if, you know, you bring something up and everyone's like, no. And then, you know, a couple months later you bring up like this small thing to lead them into that direction. And then eventually you get them to agree to that thing that you brought up and they said no to, cause you just lead them down that path. So Interesting. I, I definitely do the small wins one um, to try to get them. I have like a, re- it seems like a reverse tactic to that. So like, I think everyone knows like if you do someone a favor, like they, people feel obligated to like return it. So there's that part of it, but then there's like this tactic called rejection retreat. And then you like try again. And so if you ask for something really big, like the, the example um, would be like, you go and you ask someone to volunteer um, every week for four hours and not talking about a real life scenario. This is the story. And they're, they're like, no, that is way too much. I can't do that. And you're like, okay, how about once a month for four hours? And they're like, no, that's still too much. Um, and if they, you just cut, like gradually make it smaller and smaller, every time they say no, they feel more obligated to say yes to the next one. And so you could say like, okay, how about you donate $25? And the person's like, sure because I've said no to you, you know, two, three times. And that's a commitment that I'm like willing to make. And so starting with a really big ask and then just working your way down is usually a really good way to get someone to agree to at least something. I think that's a good piece of negotiation though, too, is that you start with more than what you're willing to accept because you know that you're going to end up with something smaller. So I think that that fits right into negotiation. Mm -hmm. Merlin is like well, thinking like back on his life, oh, like all the things like he could have done differently. Oh, I'm thinking about all the times that people asked me for something big and then something smaller. And then I agreed to the third one. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the classic like fundraiser. Like if you're going around door to door asking people to help with something like that's a really common tactic that that type of person would use. Yeah, it's true. I think that also acknowledging that there are positives and negatives is a good form, right? Because sometimes when you're trying to persuade somebody, you think of like a car salesman, they're always going to try to persuade you to buy the car at the highest price. But if you're, if you're good at persuading people, you say, Hey, you know, like there's going to be some really good positives that come from this, but I understand that negatively it could impact you or people 
by, you know, X or whatever. So I think that make, like, if you share both the positives and the negatives, um, you're able to get people on your side because they understand that you're thinking of it from all angles and not just your own side. That would build like trust. I would think like you're mm-hmm. not trying. Yeah. Like to deceive not, them. Yeah. Right. Like I think of the car salesman. Yeah. <laughs> I think of like deception of negotiation and stuff. As a total aside, do you think that used car salesmen ever feel like really depressed about their jobs because everybody picks on them for being terrible salespeople? And they're like always the butt of the joke. I just feel kind of sad for them. Do you know any used car salesmen people we can ask? No, not really. I do. Oh, well, we should. <laughs> I'll ask. We should bring them onto the podcast as a guest and be like, What's you guys want to talk about the automotive industry? <laughs> uh, not today. <laughs> Um, so what, what else is on that long list, Liz? Uh, there is social proof. So the idea that people want to go with the crowd, follow the herd. And if everyone else mm. is doing it, you want to do it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a really mm-hmm. common tactic. If your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? Yeah. Right. I feel like I've gotten that from the door knockers. They're like, well, a lot of your neighbors have been. Yeah. A lot, of the, a lot of your neighbors have been giving us, you know, $30. So maybe you'd like to consider the same. Like, hmm, yes, my neighbors. Yeah. I've had that with like roof and window, like, oh, 30% of your neighborhood has put on a new roof that, you know, like, oh, everyone's doing it. Or like everyone's switched garbage companies. You know, they, they try that stuff all the time. It's true. Does it work though? It, I think it does just maybe not in such blatant like, I assume that the social proof has to come from a social group that I care about, right? Like right. if it were actually my friends who were like all independently telling me that they were all doing this thing. And I feel like I, I feel this to a certain degree myself. Like if I'm talking to a group of my friends and they are all commenting on how much they enjoyed a movie that I haven't seen yet. When I see the movie, I am more likely to think positively about my movie viewing experience then maybe I would have if it were more objective. Well, and you're probably choosing to watch that movie in the first place because they are talking about it. Like you might've never picked right. it out, you know, on Netflix on your own. Right. And then they're like, oh, well, everybody really enjoyed this. I'm going to watch it. I'm like, yes, I enjoyed it as well. They made good points. And then you're able to talk about it with everyone else. Right. And then we can socially pressure somebody else to watch it. So it does yeah. work. <laughs> I think that it does. I also think choosing your prey, right? Like going after easy prey. Like I think about when I bought a new, like I bought my house a year ago. It's actually a year ago today that I closed on it. So like, but I think within that, thank you. I think I didn't even realize until up to the date. So, but I think about like the first couple of weeks that I was here, how many people like stopped because they obviously had seen the first sale sign Mm -hmm. the first sale sign came down. And I think about how many people came and knocked at the door and tried to convince me that like, I needed the roof done or I needed like all this stuff. And as a new buyer, I was like, Oh, maybe I do. Like, yeah. You're like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know the difference. And so like, like, I think that starting with somebody like that is just easier. Right. Because like, they don't know any different. Um, and you can easily persuade them, um, based on their level of experience and, you know, what you're trying to persuade them into. Like now I would just be like, Hey, I'm good. Like I've had a year of experience of homeowning under my belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Find the novice and try to scare them with the thing that they don't know about yet. Mm-hmm. What else do you have Liz on your list? 
Um, well, that made me think of like a story of like, just not know, like not knowing, like not knowing the subject matter or like the product or whatever you're looking at buying, like just not knowing enough about it to actually vet like a, whether or not you be, you need it or be like, is it high quality? Um, and so there's this story of like someone opens a jewelry shop that's selling turquoise and it's like mostly tourists coming through and they don't know anything about it. Um, and she wasn't selling anything, right. Because it was pretty, it was price fairly like affordably so they're like oh this is just like trinkets like they're not valuable even though it was high quality and so she goes on vacation and like writes a note on a post-it <laughs> saying like to her her uh, employee like mark it all half off like I just need to get rid of this like this isn't working um the employee thinks that it's a times two and she raises the price and everything when she comes back everything is sold and so it's like, if you don't know the value of the actual product, like you're going to just look at the price and assume that more expensive equals higher quality. That's a shortcut. Yep. Yep. Interesting. I feel like that, uh, I feel like that ties into like a Freakonomics style. I don't know if it's actually Freakonomics. There's like one of those similar sorts of like a business books about like, if you, if you are consistently the lowest price provider of something, then consumers of that thing will assume that your product or your service is cheap or crummy. Whereas if you're, you know, a high priced thing, like, like, I think the example there is like, if you've got handbags, right? Like, okay, if I sell you a handbag for 20 bucks, you'd be like, oh, it's a $20 handbag. Like, it's no big deal. But if I sell you that exact same handbag with like a cool logo on it, and I sell it to you for $2,000, now suddenly you think, this is like a big deal. This is like a status symbol. This is like special. And you're more likely to spend the big money on that handbag than on you the designer the bag. Yeah. I right, mean, on that's the designer social, bag because that's it, the social proof, like fit, like, yeah, yeah, too. I mean, yeah. Right. You're like, well, I've got my Louis Vuitton bag right here. And everybody's like, oh, cool. You must be, you must be awesome. Sorry for our listeners who have Louis Vuitton bags. That- <laughs> I just I don't see I thought I don't you see were gonna go personally. with what's funny is I thought you were gonna go with the car thing because we were talking about automotive earlier so I thought you were gonna go the car direction but I appreciate the handbag reference I mean yeah you could go the car direction too um but yeah I think there's there is that like perception based on how you've priced yourself and that obviously varies by industry and by market but if you're too low cost then you're going to be seen as cheap uh, and in some cases, if you're too high cost, you'll, you'll obviously just be out of somebody's budget, but that will also convey that like expectation of high quality or luxury goods or whatever. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Liz, what else do you have on your list? So it kind of fits in with this one, but there's scarcity. So if something is in short supply, people want it more. And I think we all experienced that in the last year yep. and a half with <laughs> running out of everything on the shelves. That was like a first, I think for a lot of us in our lifetimes, but yeah, like you value toilet paper a lot more when you're down to your last roll or cleaning products or puzzles or workout equipment or like anything that was just completely out of stock for such a long period of time. It also Mm -hmm. makes you feel like you want it. 
Yeah. You want it. Like I, I was fine on the toilet paper when it was starting to go, like when it was off the shelves, but then I was like, oh my gosh, what if when I need it, it's still going to be like this. So I started to become the problem too. The hoarder. Everyone just started hoarding. Yeah. Because like, you just don't like, you find yourself like, okay, what am I missing? Why am I not doing Mm -hmm. it? So Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, No, I did the same thing. Cause then I was having like that anxiety about like, okay, Mm -hmm. I've got four rolls left. I'm fine. I got two rolls left. Like I was trying to get close. Like is there, am I going to be able to find any? Like mm-hmm. now I'm down to the last roll. Like, okay, children, you get a half a square. That's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your poor kids. <laughs> they don't fine. get to lick their foot and then lick your face, nor do they get a whole uh, square of toilet paper. Not even a whole square of toilet paper. It's fine. I ended up finding more toilet paper. They didn't have to go down to the half square. It was okay. Um, is there anything else on your list, Liz? You guys just want me to keep listing things off. <laughs> you got you got the long list, so. Um, well, there is the authority factor. So people are more likely to do something and if, if an authority figure, um, and you don't even have to be a legitimate authority figure, just someone that's perceived. So you just dress someone up in a costume and they'll they're more likely to listen to them. Have you heard yep. the like classic experiment? on this okay so they wouldn't be allowed to do it anymore like let's say it was done in the 70s it was a long time ago but they took people like off the street and they like showed them a person that was like hooked up to like they were being electrocuted basically and they said like you have to shock this person and they like start with really small and work their way up and like most it was a doctor telling them right well so they did both they did a neutral person and then a doctor Mm -hmm. and with a neutral person like most people stopped when they were going to like cause severe damage or kill them. But most people kept going when the doctor told them to take it farther, like, because the doctor was telling them like they were willing to go to the like extreme danger level of electrocution. So it's interesting that like, you know, it's not right, but because an authority figure, like someone that's not a real doctor, they're just dressed like it with a clipboard tells you to do it. Like you do it. Yeah, I feel like I've actually seen that sort of in practice, uh, obviously in a less extreme sort of situation. But if you, as a consultant, if you represent confidence in this is this is what I know to be the case, this is what you need, this is what will make your business better, whatever, uh, a customer or a prospect is much more likely to be like, yep, okay, let's do it. Like, I agree with you and follow through with that than if you are, you know, giving too many options or spend a lot of time while there are pros and cons and you do all this stuff. Like if you, if you can represent that level of confidence, like I, I, I know what I'm talking about and this is the best course of action, then people are more likely to go along with it as opposed to like fight you on it. So. Mm-hmm. I think it's all about the, your confidence level. Um, yeah. So obviously in that study, like with the lab coat on and a clipboard, he probably felt more confident also giving the instructions. Maybe. Yeah. That'd be interesting. I don't know how you measure. Yeah. If you can measure that instead of it's just the perception of the way the person's dressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So do that like double blind so that the doctor doesn't know that. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) Well, the other thing I was going to say is like, if you, I don't know, like the, what the theory is called behind this one but like justification for something so like this scenario is like let's say you're cutting in line 
And you're just like, can I cut in front of you? Like 90% or sorry, 60% of the people would say no. Um, but if you say, I want to cut in you in front of you because, and it does not matter what the because is like, it could be because something completely stupid. Like I want to cut in front of you because I want to cut in front of you. 90% of the people will let that person budge the line just I, because the word because is in there. Your brain just see, like triggers like, yep, they have a good reason. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I used to do that at the airport all the time. Cause I would always be late for flights. And so I'd cut the TSA line and be like, Hey, I need to, can I, do you mind if I go in front of you? Because my flight's like boarding right now. And, and it works. Uh, and it does work, but I would never do it if it wasn't actually boarding. But I'm saying that happened a lot because I was always <laughs> late for my flights. Um, and people always let me in. They were super nice. Oh. But I always also let other people in if they tried to, you know, do it to me. Cause I was like, ah, I've been there. Right. Sympathizing. Yeah. I think empathy is a big part of persuasion. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like really being able to put yourself in that other person's shoes. Like, okay, if you're going to give something up as part of this persuasion, I'm going to like make it worth it to you or like at least tell you or let you know, like I can understand from your perspective. Yeah. yeah makes sense. Which I would say is something someone like me struggles with is the empathy part. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, Liz, do you have any, uh, anything left on your list? Uh, we're coming close to time. I have one more. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's commitment. So when someone commits to something, values, beliefs, um, it's really hard to persuade them to change their mind. Uh, and that depends a lot on age and the type of culture that you're in. So if you're in an individualistic culture like the United States, compared to like um, China or like Japan, which is very like community oriented, um, and then over the age of 50, like the likelihood of you um, really sticking to like your commitment is greater. I feel like we're seeing examples of that in current society as well. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I was trying to think of like all the ways that like maybe I've changed views or, you know what I mean? Um, because I'm, you know, obviously as an American, you can really believe whatever you want. Right. But like, if you have that family influence, I was, I, when you said that, I thought immediately of like India, right. Very familial. You stay at home with everybody. You're probably less likely to change your opinions or thoughts on things. It could be. Well, if you've got any, you know, changing of opinions to do, it seems like you've only got what, you know, 20 years to do it in before you're, uh, then you, then you'll be too old and all your opinions. <laughs> more than, it's more than your 10 Merlin. <laughs> well, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> Um, on that bombshell, I think we actually have to, uh, wrap this episode up because we're a little bit short on time today. So thank you all for listening and thank you, Liz, for sharing. Thank you for listening to the Dynamics Hot Dish podcast. For additional content and previous episodes, check out our website at dynamicshotdish.com, follow us on Twitter at Dynamics Hot Dish, and subscribe to our podcast for notifications. Thanks. See you next time.